0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today for the Middle Eastern Studies series, my guest is Dr. Alda Benjamin. Alda recently wrote a book, Assyrians in Modern Iraq, Negotiating Political and Cultural Space, published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. The book deals with the question of who are the Assyrians in modern Iraq and how they negotiated their presence, this cultural and political space. But first of all, before we're going to delve into the question of the Assyrians, Alda, welcome.
1: Thank you, Roberto, for this invitation.
0: Alda, there's one question I want to ask immediately, because I think it's very important uh, to define uh, the topic. But, you know, can you tell us something a little bit about yourself, your background, and also the origins of the book?
1: Thank you so much. Yes, of course. Um, I'm a historian of the modern Middle East. Uh, I focus mostly on the Arab world um, and the consequences of violence in in the Middle East, uh, including forced expulsion, rural, urban, and global migrations, uh, and the formation of diaspora communities, which, of course, the historian community is is a diaspora community. Uh, Currently, I am, uh, professionally speaking, transitioning from a... A position, a faculty fellow position that I had um, at the uh, University of California, Berkeley, uh, the history department there, and I'll I'll be starting um, an assistant professorship at the University of Dayton uh, in January. I've also held other positions in um, at the Kluge Center, the Library of Congress, as a fellow, where I finished this book, and uh, before that, I was a postdoc uh, with the Penn. Cultural Heritage Center at the Pennsylvania, uh, at the University of Pennsylvania Museum and the Smithsonian, um, focusing on um, cultural heritage, its destruction, preservation uh, in Iraq and Syria. So in relations to the origins of the book, uh, really the idea sparked uh, when I was working on a a MA thesis at the University of Toronto's uh, NALC department, uh, Near Eastern Studies department. Um, At that time, i Research had focused on grassroots organizations in the post 2003 Baathist Iraq. Um, and I had returned to Iraq for the first time in 2007, uh, a country I had left as a child in the early 1990s with my with my family. Uh, and it was really interesting. I I started interviewing those um, for my master's thesis. You know, I uh, conducted a lot of oral interviews, also collected a lot of the magazines and publications of these new sort of grassroots organizations. And what I learned is that a lot of these organizations had their roots in this earlier period uh, 1960s to 1980s which uh, seemed to me at that time to be quite foundational and and it, it so it became the topic of my my uh, PhD dissertation uh, and, and now book. So I went back to this earlier period and, and uh, indeed my, my original sort of hypothesis was right, that the 1960s to 1980s was, was quite important, very foundational and it has an impact in, uh, even today on, on uh, important sort of literary figures, uh, politicians that you see even operating, operating uh, today have their roots in this, uh, in this sort of um, early Republican period of the country, post monarchy.
0: Good. Thank you so much for this overview.
1: Um,
0: I just want to ask you something in order to start the discussions about your book. And this is a general question, one that you know perhaps some of the listeners may not be very familiar with uh, all of the communities in the Middle East. So I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about uh, the Assyrians, who are they?
1: Sure, Um, the Assyrians are a historic community, uh, native to Mesopotamia or northern Mesopotamia, and they belong to churches that follow the Syriac Christian tradition. So there's, you know, there's an umbrella of those churches that sort of you could group. Um, And they also, the community speaks Aramaic that is influenced uh, by Akkadian. most studies of the of on on the community or iraqi christians in general uh, depict them as as you know belonging to these sort of handful of um of churches uh, without really any shared um conception of ethnic identity or commonalities and uh, also the issue of identity which you bring up is generally not placed within a historic historical framework that you know, takes into account um, the the various aspects influencing its its development, especially in the nineteenth and, and the um, and the early twentieth, uh, actually most of the twentieth century. So, you know, for instance, you have divisions between the various Syriac um, Christian denominations, taken to be particularly the Assyrians and Chaldeans. To, uh, taken to be um, very ancient division, divisions and um, religious denominations to be demographically static uh, and, and very rigid, uh, governed by these very rigid institutions um, that are religious institutions in general. Uh, but, you know, within the um, the urban spaces, the, the political spaces that I explore in this book, the 1960s to the 1980s, um, I see that Assyrians were able to reach beyond uh, these sectarian divisions uh, very similar to Iraqis by the way, other Iraqis that we talk about uh, of other communities and ethnicities and um, and, and they, they, they transcend the sector this sort of sectarian division to to some extent by living in, in similar neighborhoods, by joining labor unions together um, and, and poli- political parties and cooperating in these sort of intellectual clubs and and um, as writers in these newspapers, and also by intermarrying. So, if you're not living in a particular village, you're living in this new urban uh, setting. You you fall in love with your neighbor. You you know. So so there are these sort of um, uh, you know intermingling as, as neighbors and as community members that happens. And also interestingly, there there is a similar Aramaic dialect, a coiny that develops in these urban settings. That's that's a little bit different than. A particular dialect of, let's say, Aramaic in a particular region or, or, or a village. So, you know, and, and you see these interactions throughout the pages of the book and, and or evidence for these sort of uh, what I talk about. Um, and, and, you know, to, to be clear, the interdenominational divisions are not fully eradicated. They do exist and they are exacerbated at, at particular periods, sometimes with the government's uh, influence or, or other reasons. Uh, but they are in, in the period that I talk about reduced, uh, particularly in the spaces, the secular spaces that I talk. About um, which, to to many, in many ways exist to in in this form um, uh, in in many of these forms to this day uh, that we, we that we have in in, in various spaces and in, in the diaspora or in the in the homelands. Um, so so basically, what I try to do, is sort of the correct to, to correct some of the misconceptions that that. I I try to address in my book is that understanding uh, that communities are not monolithic and and the Assyrians are also not monolithic and the divisions are not only based on denominational religious lines Um, there are other divisions uh, that are structural, so for instance um, between those who live in in villages or rural centers and and urban centers, between those who um, speak Aramaic and and do not speak Aramaic um, and, and also also socioeconomically those belonging to different ideological camps um and educationally as well so there's many divisions that exist in the society and i try to sort of uh, you know shed more light into various aspects of the community um that uh, that exists in any community i would i would argue
0: fascinating and you you actually anticipated a little bit of a answer to to my next question um so the book is very much about placing Assyrians in the context of Iraqi history. And I thought this was an important aspect, just to not take them as a foreign body, but as part of Iraqi history. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about the historiography of the Assyrians, your approach, and also the sources that you use for your
1: book. Thank you, Robert. Um, Roberto, I... When I when I took on this question also uh, of, of um, the 1960s to the 1980s being a foundational period, I I began to realize that there was a real um, lack of scholarship on the period that I study for Iraqi historiography in general, not only the Assyrian community. Uh, you know, we 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 deal a lot with the monarchical period, the the period of the monarchy. We have really excellent sources for them in in, in the British libraries and in um, in Britain. Um, and also, you know, it's accessible. It's, it's more easily accessible. And then we also focus on the Ba'athist period, especially the 1980s and 1990s, the ascendancy of the um, Saddam Hussein to presidency, the Iran-Iraq War, and, and authoritarianism. And, and, you know, and, and that's also very important and, and shows a lot of, um, lots of important studies that... Gives us a the context that we need, but there's uh, generally less work on the early Republican period, the 1960s to the 1980s. Um, you know the 1970s also. So we have the top, the talking of the monarchy, the early republican period under Qasem, the two Tuwaijef brothers, and you know that period generally we have less sources for. And and we know of course the state um, and and the problems with the archives and and um, I mean this is a whole discussion on on uh, you know the ethics of the Iraqi archives or their absence from from the country, their possible return and and, and so on and so forth. But when when you even um, get even um, a bit further and, and or more specific rather and focus on the eastern community especially given the approach i wanted to take and looking at them not only within these sort of religious um, ne- networks or within you know, structures that are important of course i i don't want to say that they are not important they're very um prominent and, and relevant to the communities but that there's so much more to any community in society i thought that there is a lack of um, scholarship, a lack of uh, even archives. Uh, and, and this is a problem for many communities in the Middle East where they're either displaced or they face genocide or, um, you, you know, I mean, and, and the, the state and its modern um, agenda of, of creating archives and, and what archives do you include and exclude, what communities have a voice and such. So, you know, even some of the magazines were that were created in my, you know, our our parents' generation, 1970s, even 1980s, were hard to access when I started my research in 2010, 2011, uh, when I was a PhD student at the time. So I, what I wanted to do with my archives is, um, I mean, twofold. One, focus on this period in Iraqi history that I felt was not covered well, was not, there was much more to be done with it. Uh, Work with um, non- Western, non-British sources, so I really wanted to include Iraqi uh, material, Um, and I I was the first in 2011 to do research at the Iraqi National Library and Archives, and um, I I was able to find really uh, important works and and, uh, have support from wonderful archivists at the library. Uh, For instance, uh, the the police records I have for the communist chapter all come from the Iraqi National Library and Archives. Uh, And also approach these smaller libraries, intellectuals, people who are active during this period who had this material, who just collected it. Uh, And also some, you know, religious um, private libraries uh, that uh, the Chaldean Church, the Church of the East, Church of the East and such. So uh, and, and interview a lot of people on the ground who were active during this period. Um, who so so? My approach not only was to cover this period that I felt was not covered, but to look at um, supplement material on the Assyrian community and Iraqi history using local sources, um, and to give a different perspective on on Christians in the Middle East. You know, I think um, we focus a lot on either persecution uh, or. Thinking of them as, as fifth columns in their societies, uh, but we don't think we, we don't usually give them agency. So, I really wanted to give them agency to so look at their uh, pluralistic engagements within society, within uh, other communities that they had shared interests along um, similar, you know, given their similar socio economic positionality. Right, um, you know, you, you might be workers in the same company. You have the same grievances. What attracts you would be similar. So I, I wanted to focus on those spaces um, and and look at the, the pluralistic engagements of Assyrians within within context of, of their communities. Of course, of course, not ignoring their particular um, circumstances and what happens to them. Yeah, every community has particular characteristics that define it and not ignoring their marginalization. That was also important to me. So I wanted to look at both of these aspects. So, so you know, what I, you know, in, in terms of how I look at the Assyrians, you know, and I uh, all Iraqi studies, you know, my book is about Iraq, um, so so covering a period that's not covered, covering also a region, you know, Syrians are mostly rural uh, communities, so the rural urban migrations and looking beyond Baghdad, beyond urban centers. Um, and then in terms of historiography, like I said, not only in terms of looking at them beyond the religious lenses, but also... How are Assyrians covered in Iraqi um, historiography or Iraqi studies? And usually it's about, it, it, it's there, you know, we look at them as refugees coming from, um, you know, the period of the World War One period, uh, uh, the gen- genocidal campaigns that affect Armenians, Assyrians, and other communities, their displacements, um, and then the Simele massacre of 1933. But all, th- those studies are also problematic because, you know, they... They ignore um, the ecclesiastical organization of the Church of the East. Let's say this is even before the divisions which creates the Church of the East and the Chaldean Church, right? Uh, the ecclesia, you know, these networks of trade, these networks of pilgrimage, which were not so neatly divided along these borders so you know yes there's there's displacements and there's movements but they're not going to foreign areas yet um, the historiography looks at them as as foreigners and and this idea of of this community being foreigners coming from uh, you know um uh, what becomes eventually turkey to iraq and and um uh, you know collaborating with the british which is which is only a very um uh, not a complete uh, picture of, of the community and its history during this period. This is what generally sticks with um, the... Uh, this is how Assyrians are usually sort of written about in a paragraph or so. So I, I wanted to do much more, and I wanted to contextualize them in Iraqi history, give them agency without ignoring their minoritization and in periods of persecution that the community faces.
0: You just mentioned that your book is actually about Iraq. Obviously, the Assyrians are part of Iraq. So I was wondering, uh, you know, if you can speak briefly about the effects of the First World War, which then led to the creation of Iraq in relation to the Assyrians.
1: Yes, I mean, that's, uh, I, I just touched upon it in, in, the, in the previous sort of uh, response to your question. It, it's a very big um, topic, one that we are still exploring. You know, we, um, much more studies need to be done on this topic, uh, really, the genocide, the displacement. Um, but we do know that uh, Assyrians face similar uh, circumstances like the Armenians um, who are living in, you know, places like Urmia, in Hakkari, in, in Yavan, in, ver- in various places. Um, the estimates suggest that more than 250,000 Assyrians or so belonging to various Syriac denominations or, you know, uh, by various i mean like no no more than 4 you know 3 4 um are perish between 1914 and 1918 uh some some uh, would would say about half of the eastern community uh is killed during this time so you know you you have not only the destruction of human life you have um, which included, of course, gendered violence, we, we forget about that, you know, sexual uh, abuse, rape of women and, 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 and such, uh, but also loss of farming land and property, uh, the destruction of Syrian cultural heritage uh, was severely damaged churches, uh, historic monuments, um, schools, libraries, uh, manuscripts, books, and, and, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, the the community during the World War One period is really deprived from uh, significant, uh, you know, uh, sites of deep um, significance for its collective memory. Uh, the demographic shifts uh, that. I, I, I mentioned result, result from these genocidal campaigns uh, lead in turn to trans-regional dislocations. I, I talk about that. I discuss that in my first chapter, um, uh, the trans-regional dislocations um, from, from various areas and, and movements. and. Um, you know, the, this is followed by 15 or so years later, the Samel Massacre of 1933, where you have the first crime of the Iraqi uh, state against its own population, um, where hundreds in Semel, the village of Semel, and up to thousands are killed in, in the region collectively. Uh, so there's a lot of trauma. The World War One period leaves trauma um, that is uh, collectively experienced by the community, and um, long-lasting consequences, particularly with the Semel massacre, um, you know, because it does impact, in general, those who have survived um, the genocide—not not not fully in the semel village itself, definitely. They are survivors of the of the um, of the genocide, but but uh, when you look at it outside of that area, they have been impacted by by the displacement because again, you know, I mean, think of the networks that connected these communities before these borders are drawn and and divisions are made in in, uh, in northern Mesopotamia or these areas, right? So um, all of this, there's a disruption to the way people communicated, uh, these networks of trade, of pilgrimage routes, of, of church organization, all of these are are um, are disconnected basically and uh, you know but the perception that persists among several generations of Iraqi state crafters and intellectuals closely associated with them is that Assyrians are foreigners and this comes up in the martial trial records of the 1960s of communist Assyrians uh, it comes up in, in in various ways you know um, the, there's a request, for instance, in 1948 to form a, an Assyrian battalion to fight along with the Iraqi ones in, in Palestine, to liberate Palestine, the liberation war of Palestine. Um, and again, you know, there is, um, uh, you know, there's, uh, the request is of course, uh, Accepted, but um, the way it's, it's worded in these government documents that you read, it's sort of a uh, you know uh, to correct their earlier mistakes. So, so the stigma um, of of the Assyrian community and um, their placement and their um, their citizenship or lack of it within this new modern state uh, really can you can trace it to the cement massacre and the genocide, um, and you know, it, it it in many ways it continues. You know, for instance, um, you um, the, these perceptions are not only, of course, advanced by uh, Iraqi state crafters, but but you know they're they're originated by British colonialists um, and and advanced, advanced by scholars who um, it, to some extent even you know today look at uh, Sammel very um, peripherally, not ignoring. Um, how the Assyrians were treated and, and their politicization, this idea of a military race, for instance, very problematic ideas that are advanced um, that to some extent stick. And the Simen Massacre, uh, along with other crimes of the Iraqi state, you know, the Farhud also, are not recognized by the Iraqi state, of course. So um, the trauma passes on from generation to another, uh, the experiences of Iraqis, um, and the Semin Massacre, particularly, um, is committed by the community in various ways, in poetry and literary circles. Um, it's also very interesting, you know, interviews I conducted with uh, communists born in the 1920s, 1930s are, uh, you know, they they will tell you we joined the Communist Party because we, we wanted a better Iraq, one uh, that uh, would... Uh, you know, given our, our experiences of injustice, our uh, poverty, lack of access, you know, the Communist Party sort of provided the answers and, and um, you know, uh, and we were we were attracted the secular sort of stance of the party. We were attracted to it, and it's interesting. In one of my interviews, um, a man born in 1933, very much uh, 1933 on the eve of the Semel massacre. Um, his his nickname is Abu Baz, Of course, I don't use uh, names in my book, um, given the um, institutional review process I, I've gone through. But but he wanted this nickname to be used for him. He he. Um, he traces, you know, his birth, his mother, for instance, um, giving birth early to him because of, of fear and uh, being alone, a young mother. Um, uh, he, you know, in his own words, her her milk had dried up and he would have died had it not been for the Yazidis who saved his mother and, and him and and um, their mothers uh, or their the woman, Yazidi woman, nursed him to life. So for him, you know, the injustice he faced in his uh, Early, I mean, at birth in the Semel massacre, um, he connects it ideologically to the Communist Party. And then the poverty he experiences, him leaving school early because he had to work, he could not support him, he had to help support his family. Uh, And this idea that his struggle and and um this moment cutting across denominational boundaries um allowing iraqis to unite in the face of injustice which for him was the man massacre and and uh, this other community the Yazidis, coming to their rescue so so you know the trauma of it lived and 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 continues to uh for the community and um yeah i mean it it, it's um experienced it's manifested in different ways
0: you mentioned the communists, so let's talk about chapter one. Uh, you start the discussion claiming that the relationship between Assyrians and the Iraqi Communist Party has not been fully investigated, and I wanted to ask you why you think this is the case, and also what is your contribution to this, uh, you know, corner of history.
1: Yes, um, I feel like my whole book could have been on the Communist Party. That one chapter could have <laughs> fully expanded to include so much more that I couldn't. Um, really, there's a lot of uh, there's many aspects uh, on uh, of the Eastern community's uh, engagement with the Communist Party that are revealing uh, and shed light on you know your society's interactions with with, um, with the state, urbanization. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, Grassroot activism, organization of the party, uh, the Iraqi judicial system, gender relations, you know, I mean, and, and um, rural, you know, rural communists. How did communists, you know, outside of Baghdad and urban centers, how do they interact? So there, there's a lot that can be said. And I, um, I just come light on that in my book. Um, so, you know, what happens in the, in the book, what, what my book is really about is that, you know, the second half of the 20th century, Iraqi Assyrians are urbanizing. They're moving from rural to urban centers for a variety of reasons. You know, uh, it's a civil war that's breaking, you know, the Kurdish uprising. It's um, they want to have better opportunities. You have these modern professions. And companies in in the oil sector and and also transportation that are opening up, and and uh, but also better educational opportunities that you find in the capital or in the city. So so there, you know, the rural urban migration is happening for for all these reasons and. They they become in urban centers exposed to political ideologies uh, that appear to various segments of the society. Right. So so, you know, you're, you're moving to an urban center. You're 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 a farmer. Let's say your cousin has moved. You, you go and move in with your cousin and, and you're um, it's a story of all immigrants. Right. You you go somewhere. You, you might not know Arabic very well. Um, and, and you connect with other members of your community uh, and you find your employment. And it's usually in, in, in these sectors that I mentioned, oil, transportation and such. But then you're finding that there is a lot of injustice, right? I mean, you're not happy or you're, you're a worker. You want better pay. You want better quality of life, um and so on and so forth. So you 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 urbanize and you, you politicize in these unions, um, and and there's many many um, important sort of uh, or interesting let's say uh, important and interesting uh, stories that I found. And and uh, for this part chapter in particular, I included um, you know uh, British archives. I included uh, Iraqi archives. Um, the uh, 1963 uh, Marshall cases against. Um, Communists or those accused of being communists, um, and I also included co- interviews with some of these communists in Iraq that I've conducted, um, and also publications of the Communist Party. So I, I really wanted to sort of give a different flavor and and and, and a multifaceted approach to this, you know, really interesting uh, time period and and. Um, so I, um, you know, what we what we see here is that um, the the organization of the party, you know, first it's I'm including new sources. So this is my my contribution to to this chapter. The new sources that I bring to light, but also the rural urban connection. Um, I, I mean, Batatu, of course, mentions uh, various different uh, communities and, and, and tells us that all these groups are active and involved and, and shows us with various, you know, tab- tables that he organizes. And I rely on that, of course. Uh, Tariq Ismail does a wonderful job also in doing that for us. Uh, but I think I, what I, what my, my addition is not, it's not just a communities aspect or, or history that i'm including in in the history the general history of the communist party but you know how do they organize so you know i talked about this individual who's who's recently um uh, migrates to baghdad and and lives with his cousin uh, becomes part of the uh, let's say oil company and stuff and 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 such and, and joins the union and such so so what happens is that although what i what i realized is that um Although the Communist Party is blind to ethno-sectarian affiliations of its members, a lot of the cells that I was looking at, the names I was looking at, were, um, came from very diverse backgrounds, and you had cells that were, of course, also diverse. But um, the Communist Assyrians were generally uh, organizing according to their communal affiliations. And, and the reason is because they're recently urbanized communities. Uh, and also these connections with family members. So if you're from Al and you're living in Baghdad, and then you go back, you decide to go back to your city, to your town rather, in in, in the north, uh, you spread the ideology to people in your town. So there were there were these rural urban migration or connections rather rather that happened, um, and. And what happens is that you know these kind of connections become important because after the toppling of Ghassan, uh there is this you know violence that unleashes. Thousands and thousands of communists are killed and, and you know, uh, brought to trial. Um, so so and, and many of them are executed, those who are, you know, uh, important leaders in Baghdad. So they, those rural-urban connections become important because, one, you can escape, you have a route to escape, and two, you can continue the affiliation of the party. And many do, you know, those who are from the Kurdish um, communities and, and others. Uh, and also the resistance to the Baath Party happens in the north. So then, you know, the rural... Um, um, aspects of the party or the r- rural organization uh, branches of the party are are important, and this is where um, I show what happens to the Communist Party post 1963. So the, the the story is not finishing 1963, but it's continuing. Also, um, you know, the the um, the extreme violence has. Unleashed towards a communist and their sympathizers is that um, in 1963 does not spare the community. So uh, you have issues of identity, citizenship, gender, um, or people just disliking each other. All of these, and you know, Batatu and Ismail tell us about these. But you see them in the court trials. You, 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 you know, you you can sort of like play them out in the witness testimonies. You know, people you know testifying so and so is a communist and, and and they go into specific details so all of these issues come up and um and and you, you know you the the community or the the state punishes the communities in some places collectively so there's a lot of communists in a particular place you know such as Al-Khosh, let's say uh, but it also happens in in Tel Kiev you know there are attacks on the whole community altogether so it's, it's really um, it's really interesting I mean it, it, it I think it's an important chapter about um, not only the judicial system and how it, it views Communists and others, minorities and 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 uh, women, uh, but also it reveals on you know the relations between state and society, issues of citizenship and gender. All of these come up, I believe, in in the chapter. So although the chapter gives us a lot of specific details about individuals and organization of the party and, and, um, you know, the path of specific um, members and and their interesting life stories. But I think there there are larger things that we can learn about, uh, you know, uh, the hierarchy of citizenship. I think, um, and that's important, the hierarchy of citizenship in the um, early Republican period, how they're defined, where minorities fit, where women fit, uh, and, and so on and so forth, and how that space is re, you know, reclaimed by Arab nationalists post-1963. L- let me ask about uh,
0: some of the stories that you have included in your book, and uh, there is the case of uh, Josephine Ward, very f- you know, fascinating figure. And Josephine Ward essentially brings together various issues, oil, the 1963 coup, and obviously the role of women, which I want to ask more later. Can you disentangle a little bit all of this for us?
1: Sure, yeah, she's uh, Josephine Ward is uh, very interesting. Um, my, uh, my work on her focuses entirely on um, her court trial, so her testimony, the testimony of others, a group, uh, court rulings, uh, they, and it's a, it's a large, uh, detailed file. So I, I felt very fortunate to have found it. And um, I have not found anything else on her, uh, but um, she was um, convicted for her activism and membership in the Iraqi Women's League, a very important women's organization. Uh, she was a, the branch president of Karkouk. So so a quite uh, important position she had in this uh, party, which had branches all over the country. Um, the Iraqi Women's League was an organization affiliated with the Communist Party. So there was a few organizations as such, you know, workers unions, uh, you know, youth groups and such uh, that were also... Affiliated with the Communist Party, and um, also so so she's not only convicted for her for her activism and and, and membership um, in in the league, but also for causing chaos in her community. So that's uh, that's uh, a phrase used, and I can sort of untackle that for you a bit more. Um, and you know her 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 case is really interesting it fits within the context of the chaotic tide uh, of revolutionary iraq so this specific moment um uh in in the history of the country but particularly in the history of kirkuk an oil city uh, that had rapidly urbanized uh you know sarah persley arbelovich neemoon write about this um, Urit writes uh, Urit Bashkin about uh, communists and others and of course um uh also frati nugai frati writes a lot about women and, and their positionality. so here i'm looking at um at, at these cases or or this history from the vantage point of uh, judicially how did the state how did how did these judicial institutions um treat uh, somebody like warda josephine warda and you know it's 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 really interesting um in in her case, you know, they um, is distinct is is very unique and distinctive in, in relations concerning those of men that I have found from the same sort of files from um, that same period, men who are tried because they're communists or accused of being a com- communist or belonging to an affiliate organization that was associated closely with the communist party, and uh, it's it's unique. From the cases of men, mostly we have cases of men, um, in the gendered tone characterizing the testimonies of witnesses um, and of Wanda herself and how she defends herself, mm-hmm. right? So uh, it makes it really interesting. And, and also the, the, um, the guilty verdict issued by the court uh, that, you know, so, so gender is, is an important component, I believe, of her case. So um, you know, so, so you, the use of gender really just complicates the uh, the the court's um, uh, martial records of 1963, and and allows us to examine women in a way uh, that's that's unique, uh, especially women associated with the left or women associated with the Communist Party, and and how they were treated by the state and understanding um, also um, some of the attitudes that were um, towards women that were held by society at large during that period of interest, right? So, you know... in in 1963, you know, we, we sort of uh, talked about this and and the question prior, uh, the Qasim, uh, Qasim ad, uh, government is toppled. Uh, you have Arab nationalist leaders um, who who reclaim the Iraqi socio political space uh, from the leftist and communist uh, that Qasim ad, Qasim had supported his government had supported, and they the representation of of the Qasimite period as this chaotic tide, right, uh, signified this, you know, chaos that was driving um, a society, a crisis of paternity in society. So there really is a crisis of paternity. So the so gender, again, is important here, which um, which resulted not only from how Arab nationals felt that they were sort of, you know, um, overshadowed by leftists and communists, but also... From the chaos, you know these chaotic forces. Let's say that these groups represented um, in this new sociopolitical sort of space of, of the country of Iraq. Um, you know, for some sort of, for instance, um, the Iraqi women's league. We know that they were pushing really important um, issues at that time. They were um, they, they and they in many ways threatened this uh, new revolutionary post-monarchical period, um, with, with their, uh, activism, their excessive mobility in spaces that men had no access to in, in many cases, um, their, their campaigning, their social programs. Uh, for instance, they had a really um, active uh, literacy project for present women. And, and they also pushed for the personal status law, amended the personal status law. So, you know, so, so she fits within this context. You know, she's an example of a, a woman from that period is going to be sort of put in her place, you know, um, and, and, you know, and, and this is what the chaotic tide is all about and, and how she's put in her place and this hierarchy of citizenship is, um, again, corrected, you know, um, and, and, and you had in, in going back to oil, uh, and your question relating to that. How uh, Kirkuk, as a, as a you know city, urbanized very uh, rapidly since the discovery of oil 1927. Uh, you had um, new urban communities coming into the city, and and um, increase, for instance, of, of uh, these new immigrant communities, um, and and what what it meant to existing communities that had felt threatened and and the um, you know Kurds and Assyrians and others were supporting and and were supported by the left and and they were actively engaged in these spaces and of course Jews before them uh, during this time of course we know that the Jews had been exiled from the country uh, but but the Shiites also in, in the central and southern parts of the country were were you know drawn to the Communist Party so so there was um, you know, the, these minority or newer communities—they—they uh, they had access to this public space within this sort of um, in, in during this period, and and you see it just corrupted, right? I mean, it's it's a uh, uh, it it's the uh, the hierarchy of citizenship that. Um, Post 1963 is put back into place, and a woman like Josephine Warda, in her accusations, again, gender comes up. Like I mentioned, she is um, uh, seen uh, walking around. She is seen uh, in, in neighborhoods talking to women in these spaces that women, men don't have access to. She's seen um, communicating with men who are not from her uh, household. You know, not her husband, not her brother, and and and, and questions are raised about her reputation. Uh, of course, these were other other um, colleagues that were part of the uh, the Communist Party, let's say, and, and and such with her. So her activism, her her excessive mobility, um, her sort of um, abrasive nature, according to one of the witnesses, and, and putting him in his place, and how dare she, you know, and and all of that comes up. And it's it's really a, an excellent example again of, of the treatment of women, leftist women, Communist women during this chaotic time, during this sort of period. Um, Uh, of the late 50s, early 60s.
0: I want to move forward, um, you know, with the following chapters. Um, I want to focus particularly on chapter four, which is about the press and also popular Syrian culture in the 70s and 80s. And, you know... You covered this part of the book with uh, examples again of uh, uh, women, in particular,ly and um, you know specific magazines, and uh, and I was wondering if you can give us a sense of uh, the Assyrians intellectuals of this period, and also some of the publications. Of, of this period,
1: Yes, um, I'd be happy to. I and I, uh, yeah, I should have said it from the beginning. I, I, I try to give a voice to women and, and uh, Assyrian women and it's not always easy to do that. You know, I'm sure you know this. It's, they're not always um, given a voice in, uh, in archives and they don't always leave memoirs and, and sometimes they learn about gender relations or how they are being perceived uh, from the perspective of male authors or, you know, so, Josephine, as an example? I mean, you know, we learn about her from the courts. And, and um, Margaret George is another woman, a militia fighter with the Kurdish uh, uprising and they pointing to the role of Assyrians uh, within the, the Kurdish uprising. And then also in this chapter. So um, the the chapter on the, um, I, I think, uh, chapter four. Um, so chapter four, and uh, three and four are mirror images of each other. And uh, I really try to be... Uh, to, to give sort of a, a wide perspective or um of, of sources or of perspectives right by by layering different or in, intertwining different uh, sources that I had so chapter three focuses on on the same period 70s and 80s from using Bathist archives so as so, you know um, uh, the perspective of the state looking into the community and, and and in general and chapter four that you you're asking about now uh, from the perspective of the community looking at their press and I think it's important uh, to do that uh, so you know have these sort of mirror images to see what, what each sort of segment is thinking of the other Each, you know uh, but also you know in terms of um, Assyrian um, giving a voice to the Assyrians what I try to do in that chapter is uh, look at their magazines and publications both in Arabic and Aramaic and I think it's important to look at both together because um, sometimes I'm asked, you know, are they translations? No, they're not translations. Sometimes they're oftentimes actually they're speaking to different audiences, right? Even in the same magazine so so these these intellectuals writing into different languages um, it, you know, it, it's it's important and it gives you context into the community the generational di- divisions gender issues and and so much more so so 1970s what happens is that um, the bath finally claims power after coup d'etat, two coup d'etats they finally succeed in, in in um forming a hegemony and and, uh, taking hold of of the government. They know they're weak because they've lost power twice before. So they forge relations with communists and and, um, the Kurdistan Democratic Party, the KDP, uh, because they know that there are strong forces of the opposition. They also um, give favorable um, policies, issue favorable policies to minorities, the Assyrians and the Turkmens. Um, In the case of the Assyrians and and, in the... um, and, and for minorities, it's basically cultural rights that they issue, right, that they give them. So for, in the case of the assurance, it's law 251, um, and um, it's done in a way, um, so 1972, to, uh, to basically account, bring them closer to the party. Why? Because they realize um, they are heavily involved in the opposition, so with the communists and, and with the Kurdistan Democratic Party, or the Kurdish uprising, let's say, which which the Kurdish uprising eventually hegemonizes, and and the the KDP becomes sort of um, the main um, uh, the main party, uh, tribe party, right? Uh, the Barazanis hold hold um. The, the largest hegemony and they, um, the Assyrians involvement with the, with the Kurds and I, I talk about it, you know, it's a secular leaders eventually who joined, but also a lot of tribal leaders and, and, that that's a whole story, uh, but I complicate our understanding of the Kurdish uprising and and say that one the communists continue. I mean they don't stop in '63; they do continue. There's a part, you know, in, in the north, um, and and also that um, the Assyrians uh, joined the Kurdish uprising. So it's, it's not just the nationalist movement, but it involves other groups. So so going back to your question, um, the the government, um, you know, this is this is part of um, a new look at looking a new way of looking at the both early Baathist period, of, of saying that the Baathists did negotiate. They did play politics early on, and this is something that others um, have also claimed. Um, so it's, it's supporting the sort of new direction of, of uh, looking at the Bath party and how they operated, um, and, and why it's important to look at, you know, every, every sort of uh, period of, of, of a government uh, or, or a political party in power, not just a the last stage of authoritarianism, because we do learn a lot about how how state society how state interacts with society and how it's impacted by it, right? So during this early um, during this time, as I said, they're they're negotiating. And they give rights to minorities because uh, of the position of minorities within the opposition, particularly the Assyrian community. And uh, not only that, uh, you know, I, I also claim that they're worried about uh, identity issues within the community and diasporically, and particularly between denominations, the various denominations that we discussed at the beginning of our interview, uh, and also uh, given um uh, you know, it's a Cold War period. Uh, the the bath wants to appeal. Uh, you know, they're going back and forth between the Soviets and, and and the West, but they want to appeal in a positive light. So so, uh, and and they know that the community is very diasporic. You know, there's a large. Community here in Chicago, right, and um, uh, and and these diaspora community members to complain to human rights organizations to their governments when there is an abuse when there is something going on. So they wanted to appeal in a positive light. So so you have these cultural rights this law two fifty one issued, um, and also um, certain leaders who had been exiled, including the patriarch of the Assyrian Church of the East. Since 1933, are welcome back, um, and their citizenship is given back to them. Of course, you know there's over maybe 10,000 people who are displaced into in, in 1933. Those people are ignored, but you know at least leaders are, are brought back, right? Um, and and they they come back. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, I'm not going to focus on that aspect. There there's much more to be said about that. But let, let me go back to the um, the literary. Period. Uh, it's very optimistic. Uh, there is, um, I mean, the community is cautiously, let's say, cautiously optimistic about the passage of Law Two Fifty One. Uh, it gives them cultural rights. It gives them many. I mean, there, there's many sort of points mentioned in here. Uh, not all of them are. are um, are delivered upon, but but there is a space opened up for intellectuals to publish in Arabic and in Aramaic, um in, in their language. And and um there really is this sort of interesting space for Iraqi intellectuals to engage. Um and they're learning that you know there are ways of um sort of negotiating, let's say, I use the word negotiate, sometimes are resisting, but then very quickly they learn, they, they cannot, not very much, they will get in trouble, right? Um, so so they negotiate um, using accepted narratives that the bath has allowed. So for instance, the bath regime is sort of constru- investing heavily in cultural heritage and, um, you know, uh, Arabizing Mesopotamian heritage; they're um, highlighting Iraq's Abbasid, uh, you know, period and how important it is for the Islamic world and, and the place of Iraq and Baghdad within mm-hmm. it. So the Assyrians sort of, you know, take on this Abbasid narrative and and they integrate themselves within the you know the and, and argue for rights using the you know look you know we were a part of you know the Bayt al-Hikma you know the and we contributed and and so and so and and this golden uh, period of Islam gave us rights. And and, you know, using sort of this um, 20th century terminology to talk about the medieval past and such, but, but still, or the, or the Abbasid period, uh, but, but, you know, they're very savvy intellectuals and Iraqis of other communities are doing exactly the same thing, right? Um, so this, you know, this, um, this space opens up, you know, this pluralistic space, which is um, still, I would argue, um, hierarchical. Right, You know, you, you, as an intellectual, you know, you, you stand in different, um, you are existing within this hierarchy, but I think it's important and it's engaging um, and, um, and, and th- there, there are uh, important sort of developments in terms of standardization of the language. And if you look, if you read these magazines, they're talking about issues of identity, what's the correct terminology to call ourselves, you know, uh, how do we define our language? How do we standardize our language? how do we modernize it and then and then the arabic and the uh, and, and I'm, uh, i should mention i'm particularly talking about um or in my book i talk about i've published other articles i look at other magazines but i focus on the uh, on mordana turaya or the literate assyrian which was a publication of the assyrian culture club i give reasons in my book why i do that uh, one because i have i found all Issues for for the, the ten years it was in, um it was published uh, allowed to exist and um, it's a the Stern Culture Club itself um, is a very important uh, center uh, the magazine and the and the club comes up often in uh, Bathist archives, so the state is concerned, it's monitoring it. And also the community, when I started my research uh, for the PhD, um, this was the first magazine that they started digitizing, collecting, putting it together, which enabled me in turn to, to look at it. But there's a lot of other magazines that are important. Uh, and I I've published uh elsewhere on them. Um, so, you know, they the Arabic and, and, and uh, Aramaic, they're not exactly the same. They're not translations. And, and you have two different generations, really. So it's, it's really actually fascinating. You know, the Arabic tends to be a little bit more progressive because our are younger men and women who are writing because they had not. And the Aramaic, those fluent in Aramaic are elder. You know, they're probably their parents sometimes who, who had access to the language and, and were able to train in it to, to write fluently using it. So the, those writing in Arabic will speak it fluently, but, may, but they might not be um, re, able to read and write within, you know, and, and there's also a generational, you know, they're born in the 1950s, they were urbanized, they went to universities um, with other Iraqis. So, so you know, it, 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 you, you learn a lot about issues of gender, um, but in general, though, the magazine and the club are progressive and, and, and secular.
0: We talked about uh, the Ba'ath Party, and the Ba'ath Party is famous because, uh, uh, obviously, the Ba'athification process, which essentially tried to homogenize uh, uh, Iraqi society from different perspectives, which also means the party uh, became oppressive in its nature. And I was wondering if you can give us a sense of how the whole process unfolded and how the Syrians uh, acted towards this process, their dissent, the resistance, And now, eventually, the Assyrians uh, survive this period of time.
1: Yeah, that's a good question, um, Roberto. So um, what happens, I guess, a turning point for the Assyrians, some have argued it's the beginning of the Iran-Iraq War, which is accurate, of course. But I I see changes, uh, let's say, maybe in the northern uh, region maybe we could generalize and say that uh, after the uh, the Algiers agreement between Iran and Iraq so 1975 uh, why because Iran under under um, the Shah's government is supporting the Iraqi opposition, the Kurds, the Assyrians included. And uh, when they come to an agreement um, with the, the Ba'athists on, on a number of issues, but including um, the stopping of, of funding to, to the opposition, the opposition crumbles. They are not really an important, um, you know, the, the government isn't as concerned about them. So do they really need to negotiate uh, with these communities that are uh, attracted to the opposition or involved within the opposition, and um, they, they do not. So you, you do see a reversal after the 1975 um, algiers agreement. So uh, the reversal also co- coincide as, uh, coincided with the increased pacification of society that, that you uh, rightly mentioned. And um, of a Syrian organization, so you know a lot of these organizations that either existed or are newly created, or radio programs, um, singers. You, you see that they're persecuted. Um, this process begins in the late 1970s, so after the Algiers Agreement of 1975, and escalates definitely during the Iran-Iraq War. So you know what you happen. What happens at this time? Uh, singers could be imprisoned for uh, singing a song that's perceived to be, um, you know, uh, highlighting aspects of the Assyrian identity that the government is not, um, has not okayed. For instance, uh, the the Mesopotamian past, you know, I I argue in my book that there are four important aspects, three three to four important aspects of the Assyrian identity, you know, the Mesopotamian heritage, the Syriac, Christian um, traditions and, and um, you know, very important, their, their form of Christianity is very important and unique to these uh, communities, the Aramaic language that they speak, uh, and also, of course, uh, their cultural traditions and such. So some aspects of, of the identity are Okay, by the government. They're even highlighted in certain spaces and, and places um, during the cultural uh, movement sort of um, high period. Uh, for instance, the government, you know, in, has um, a conference on uh, Rabban uh, or Mar'aprem, um, you know, and, um, Hymnographer uh, and um, you know and and other sort of um, Syriac Christian uh, religious figures or saints um, that that were. Uh quite popular and important um, within the community, but also academically and Western scholars are invited. So certain aspects of the community are highlighted, are accepted. uh, Others are not. So so the Mesopotamian heritage would not be, right? Um, So the, you know, you you see persecutions, you see imprisonments, you also see actually um, destruction of of, uh, communities uh, in the northern parts um, of of the country. So in, in various various regions, uh, destruction of Assyrian villages, along with their crops and farmlands. um, That happens in the mid to late 1970s. Of course, again, in the 1980s with the Enfal campaign that targets uh, Kurdish communities and other northern Iraqi communities, including the Assyrians. But it's starting in the 1970s. And then you also see the uh, the census information in 19... uh, I believe it's 78, um, where you have you know uh, these communities that are not allowed to um they have to choose as an ethnicity either arab or kurdish so you know the the community is feels uh, you know um disrespected you know that they they that they cannot Choose our own ethnicity. They have to choose between those two, these two um, ethnicities, um, and you know the bathification of society, overtaking of, of these clubs and 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 such and, and such, um, uh, persecution in general. So that what 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 that leads to is um, the. Uh, you know particularly with the cultural rights now now remember during the cultural rights the community was referred to as a national minority right but by the late 1970s and 1980s they become a denominational community so they go from a national minority to a denomination within a matter of ten years uh, and that re- reflects the, the the treatment of the state and how the state views them and and some have argued you know the, the bathification or the bathification also takes on an Arabization uh, sort of uh, policies um, and and um, with the destruction of rural Assyrian communities and then and their their hometowns and such and their cultural heritage, so so what this what this does, you know, the increased pathification with the um, the cultural rights and this sort of um, the impetus that that's um, that that is created, which allows the Assyrian intellectual class to consolidate during that period. Um, what you have is the, the reestablishment of the Assyrian political movement, which I argue has been destroyed since since, since the 1930s, right? So you have the reestablishment of this movement as uniquely separatist. So, so up until now, I mean, you had some political parties, but they don't have, you know, grass mobilization movement. And as I discussed, the, the community is drawn to these other larger political Iraqi parties uh, that, that are welcoming and inclusive of them. So you know now you have you know with the with the cultural rights with the sort of uh, increased pathification of society this this unique um, uh, you know um, political Assyrian political class develops that joins uh, and operates within the northern Iraqi opposition. Um, basically, what I argue is that with those cultural rights that were granted to the community in the 1970s, the Assyrian intellectual class gained sort of this this um this temporal space to celebrate its cultural identity and 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 eventually negotiate for increased political rights um and you know this this and you have to think about again i'm going back to the generational this new generation these sort of um uh, mostly born in the 1950s, and women, men and women born in the 1950s, uh, raised and educated in, in urban centers. So, so if there was a, if, you know, rural urban migrations would have affected their grandparents and their parents, not themselves directly, mostly, right? Um, so and, and employed in modern professions are going to universities, they're organizing at this time, and, and you know, it's, it's a unique class that develops. Um, and, and it's, you know, there's, there's important transitions, that you see among this new generation, um, whose, whose members are are much more embedded in the Iraqi society than their parents and grandparents were, were because of their exposure. You know, uh, again, imagine, I mean, Iraq, you have oil money at this time, right? So you have all these public institutions, you have universities that are free, anybody, if you have the grades, you can go to to the best Iraqi universities so it just really give you access you know you could be coming from this family that's not very wealthy that's from a rural village but here you don't you don't need to have money you can go to university and be an engineer and be successful so it opens up this whole new world for you right so you know it, it's a really interesting period although there's you know there's all these sort of Conflicts in this society, but a space has opened up for these uh, men and women born in the 1950s. Um, so they're they're also this class is disappointed by the failures of their earlier generation of Assyrians, not sec- securing rights for the pop for, for their communities, um, and and you know the everyday lives of the community. So so this particular um, generation and this new political movement that develops is very successful in integrating or fusing, let's say, Iraqi patriotism with Assyrian nationalism. So for them, they're both Iraqi and they're Assyrian. There, There's no conflict there. And and laying sort of the needed ne- uh, groundwork for a successful um, political movement that, um, that can sort of be part of the opposition, that could be a mass movement. And, you know, going back to the increased... Bathification of society. What, what the bath does is they persecute these. Um, so, for instance, the Assyrian Democratic Movement is, is formed in 1979, um, and I and I interview and, and look at the underground. Um, publications of this uh, of this movement um in the spaces of the iraqi opposition in the north and and also interview some of their uh founders and, and early members and you know they i mean it's interesting how they describe their activism but but what, what I what I conclude is that um, given the increased um, bathification of society, which continues throughout the 1980s, and in the 1980s, of course, the war begins with Iran, the eight-year war. So you can do a lot more and um, sort of hide it under the, the um, you know, these men were criminals. Uh, Iran is responsible for this. You can do a lot during wartime. Commit your own crimes against your population, and 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 somehow you know uh, the world turns a blind eye, or you sort of uh, disguise it as something else. Um, so you know you have a scapegoat basically. So what what happens is that you know those persecutions continue. The infad campaign is, is is really horrible. But before that, in the early eighties, you have um, persecution, imprisonment, and then execution of these um, members of this political party, which in turn elevates um this this new political party or or this new political movement um and and uh, really you see this diasporic um connection with them so for instance a lot of uh, Assyrian songs and singers become banned like Kurdish songs like other communities uh, and now you have you know um, a growing diasporic Iraqi diasporic community like in places like Chicago and some of these singers who have sat, found a safe haven in places like Chicago uh, are singing about this movement so it's it's re- really interesting this diasporic sort of grassroots organization that develops um, and, and um, continues throughout the 19th Eighties and into the nineteen nineties and, and and so forth, and you know in terms of finishing off, you know I'm jumping from the nineteen eighties to the twentieth century to sort of you know answer the the last part of your question. It's it's really difficult. I mean, it, um, the Assyrian community had a very active role within the Iraqi opposition. Uh, they did not, of course. I mean, the book is is uh, full of. Uh, various engagements of the community within different political uh, entities and, and some of them of course who lived in urban centers um, were also joined to the Ba'ath party some because they had to others because they thought it was the best thing I mean I also look at uh, one particular uh, you know member of the community who who becomes a high um, you know figure within the Ba'ath party eventually uh, loses that position but you know I, I do look at I tried to give you a various different sort of, you know, because again, going back to what I said at the beginning, communities are not monolithic, right? There's always diversity. So I I tried to give you sort of a different flavor of how Assyrians, like other Iraqis, had to survive and and, and live and and thrive and negotiate and sometimes resist, sometimes collaborate. And, and, you know, this is what society is all about. This is how um, they they function. Um, So, you know, going from the 1980s to the 1990s and 2000s, it's, it's, we need another thirty minutes to talk about it. But if I was to sum it, you know, it's um, um, l- let's say the 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 nationalist movement that was established that that I just uh, sort of uh, summarized to you, um, fusing Iraqi nationalism and Iraqi uh, and um, or patriotism with the Assyrian nationalism, so fusing Iraqism and, and the Assyrian identity together, um, that. Sort of that uh, ideology and those s- slogans of them. Sort of, uh, one wonders how successful they are in today's sectarian Iraq. Heightened, you know, you you do have a heightened um, uh, sectarianism uh, that is, um, you know, uh, very much visible in the country. You have violence and extremism, corruption, um, and and the community and and other marginalized uh, groups in the country, minorities, and Iraqis in general, are really um, in a difficult position. And for minorities like the Assyrians, unfortunately, they don't have 20, 30, 40 years for for them to sort of uh, wait for the country to stabilize, especially when... um, Unfortunately, um, the situation became very drastic post two thousand and three, especially with the uh, ISIS or Daesh invasions and, and overtaking of their um, the campaigns that targeted these communities and, and particularly the Yazidis and, and, uh, and, and, others, um, and, and led to the displacement, loss of life, destruction of cultural heritage and safety. So the community really lost a lot of, um, more, more than 50% of the Assyrian community, uh, have, uh, you know, become displaced or are refugees in Iraq. Um, and the diasporic numbers continue to grow because of that. Um, and, and you know, other problems. You know, there was oil discovered in their areas and in particular spaces. So you have disputed territories for, um, you know, the 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 Christians, the Yazidis, and and other minorities, which uh, and and just a lot of conflict between the um, the Kurdistan Regional Government, uh, the central government, um, leading to political tensions um, and and coercion by larger Iraqi political groups uh, that want. You know they want that want their areas to be connected to their to their regions, right, so mostly the minorities I think have been left out of the discussion altogether, and they're you know they're in a dire situation right now with their numbers decreasing drastically and um, the situation being um, quite challenging for them Is
0: there anything that we didn't discuss? our conversation, but that you want to say uh, as a somehow happy ending to our discussion of the Assyrians.
1: Uh, Well, thank you so much, uh, Roberto, for this really uh, engaging discussion that I had with you. And I think... um, sort of a positive you know we we have we have a lot of work to do i think we i, I want to go back to sources and, and and approaches um really if we want to study these communities um various marginalized communities in the middle east it could be palestinians armenian you know um, arab jews and, and, uh, and assyrians and, and and many others we need to think about how do we include their voices how can we help them? Um, as scholars, but others engaged in this field uh, and engaging with their communities to preserve their histories, preserving their their um, sources, because we know that um, the the current institutions that we have do not always do a good job of including uh, their voices, their materials. So I think we we really have to be careful in um, you know being intentional about. Preserving their history, their archives, so that we we can attest to this really uh, wonderful diversity and pluralistic spaces that existed and and hopefully continue to exist in our um, in the region that we study in Iraq. Uh, Iraq is one of the most diverse countries, I would argue, in the region. Um, there are others, of course, Turkey, Iran, but you know, I I, I favor Iraq. I'm, I I study Iraq, and I am from there, and I I'd love for this diversity. Uh, or at least um, the narratives, you know, to be preserved, and and this the reality that we know, which is dra- drastically changing, you know, uh, because of the um, turmoil and violence that the country has experienced, um, and, and you know, we we can do our part by by um, preserving, but also making sure that um, our histories, our the way we write includes different voices and uh, is is, um, reflective of the the realities on the ground, whether today or historically.
0: This was uh, Dr. Alda Benjamin, author of Assyrians in Modern Iraq, Negotiating Political and Cultural Space, published in 2022 by Cambridge University Press. Alda, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much.